0: This is the Imperfect Buddha Podcast, the podcast that dares to think differently. Mixing interviews with analysis, we investigate contemporary Western Buddhism and evolving 21st century practice and theory. The podcast is sponsored by O'Connell Coaching. Yes, that's me, a non-guru, down-to-earth approach to engaging practice, change work and growth particularly suited to those who've become disenchanted with Buddhism, spirituality and the various promises of self-help, personal development and the happiness trap of mindfulness. Check out imperfectbuddha.com for more information on the podcast, the coaching, as well as a blog on post-traditional and non-Buddhist approaches to Buddhism and more. Welcome to this return to cult land. All too human could well be our motto for this episode. In our fourth foray into the land of Buddhist cults, we ask once again, what does it mean to be part of a Buddhist cult? What would it even mean for a Buddhist group or tradition to be labelled as a cult in the first place, rather than, say, just one of many different traditions with different aims and concerns? This is a rather complex issue as we shall see and this extended introduction is designed to help the less informed orientate themselves to the discussion that follows and provide a few critical tools for further thought and reflection. One of the downsides of complexity is that folks often ignore the telltale signs of cultish behaviour. Cults are after all enduring features of the religious life They are fascinating, curious things, as the wonderful Wild Wild Country series on Netflix recently reminded us. Their complexity should be taken as an invitation to go down the rabbit hole and take a deeper look at human need and human folly, and the willingness of those to exploit both in the name of their religious obsessions and human weaknesses. In fact, all of this becomes far more interesting and begins to make far more sense when you suspend the ridiculous beliefs of cults and just start to see everything they do as thoroughly human. But what about this term cult? I mean, to call a group a cult may be considered wholly negative or ooh, judgmental or arrogant or plain ignorant. You don't understand our practices and beliefs, followers might say, And of course that may be true, but it also may be true that those beliefs are identical to other cults and thus worthy of criticism. Fair enough, you may say, but to shun a group as cultish or cult-like may actually be a political move designed to promote one vision of Buddhism over another. I mean, the history of Buddhism is full of one-upmanship after all. And the Tibetans are no stranger to this, with their notions of Hinayana and Mahayana, which is to say, inferior and superior vehicles. But, again you say, the label cult may just be a form of suppression. To label that other group as a cult means to really say, we don't approve of it. And it could therefore become a tool of hegemony by a dominant group to simply suppress or control another. Again, Tibetan Buddhism has a history of this kind of thing. And today's group of interest has certainly made that claim. Although in this case, there's not much evidence to support them. Religious or spiritual groups are not hermetically sealed spaces that exist apart from the world, even when they would very much like to be. Yes, that's one of those consistent themes across cults, exclusivity, specialness and superiority. But, sorry to tell these folks, much of the wonderful individual and societal dysfunction we find in wider society obviously plays out inside those spaces too, but is often taking on different forms that may be harder to spot or may be translated into interesting stories which deny reality and assign a special status to this or that. In fact, cults are really required to elaborate stories to hide their dysfunctions or explain them away or to recast them. One of the most common techniques in Buddhism and dysfunctional Buddhist groups is to define dysfunction as mere karma or somehow a reflection of your untrained mind. At their worst, they will use religious or spiritual beliefs to justify illegal and or destructive practices – psychologically, spiritually, sexually, physically – most often carried out by the guru, but not always. In its common usage, which is to say the way most folks use the term, cult does imply something sinister, nefarious, manipulative and controlling. And we are surely all familiar with religious groups in Christianity, in Islam, in Hinduism, and even Judaism that exhibit such behaviour. So why not in Buddhism? I mean Buddhism is a religion after all, right? And very much the product of imperfect humans. Unless you believe that it's the hagiographic stories in which perfect divine beings transmitted timeless wisdom down to your teacher and that you only need to follow faithfully. Or was that blindly? Hmm. Our tradition of interest today is always banging on about faith and using that as a stick to hit people with when they fail to blindly fall in line. You just need more faith, mate. I wonder how many of the truly faithful in that tradition have ever given any real thought to what a responsible, mature, adult form of faith might look like. I certainly don't believe it's blind. Now, it is true that Religious Studies academics prefer the term New Religious Movement, or NRM, to cult. And this is partly as an attempt to get away from the negative connotations associated with the term cult, which is perfectly understandable. The history of religion is a history of persecution, but sometimes that persecution (laughs) may have made sense. Especially with some of the dodgy groups we've seen emerge over the last century or so, especially in the states and especially in the world of, well, fundamentalist Christianity. But it's not just there, is it? And that's why, in a sense, we are again returning to this topic. Human behaviour is human behaviour after all. If we're going to be generous and considerate, it is a useful category differentiation to make. Most of the Buddhist groups that exist in the West today are, well, technically speaking, new religious movements but in popular usage, the word cult does have the power to reveal that something is distinctly amiss in specific groups and that those groups are not just innocuous alternative takes on a mainstream religion or another new kid on the block. Think Scientology, if you've seen any of the documentaries about that very dodgy group. Some of these groups cause real-world harm, and so consistently so as to be rightly defined as cultish. Such groups, if we were to be thoroughly honest, ought to come with a warning sign, so at least people can be informed. I'm actually of the idea that if you want to join a cult, go for it. But you kind of should know what you're getting into. Our group today would ideally carry a whole set of warnings, partly because it's so sneaky in how it hides its cultish tendencies, and because it keeps trying to expand, grow and infiltrate more areas of secular life where it really shouldn't have a place at all. At the Great Feast, today's tradition would not last very long at all, which is probably why it refuses to engage with any other tradition, or any of the criticisms it has received since its inception, and there have been a lot of them. But let's talk about religion just for a moment. Let's be honest. In the West, we have a very contentious relationship with it, whether it's the secular-religious divide, which has been shown to be not only overly simplistic, but a sort of ideological straitjacket limiting our ability to understand religiousness more broadly. And there's a powerful impulse that can be found alive in secular spheres too. From politics to dietary fads. From conspiracy theories and anti-vaxxers to new exercise routines. From sports themselves to self-help movements. Fanaticism, blind belief and the spreading of untested gospels is rife across collective human behaviour. And because of this, it should be fascinating to, well, to you. Does this mean, then, that everything is religious? Well, not exactly. That would be yet another lazy way of approaching the world. But it does remind us that religiosity, as a characteristic of human social behaviour, is ubiquitous and requires greater examination, understanding and, uh, dare I say, compassion. Yet there are also valid reasons for being harsh in our judgments of religions and cults. Consider the protected nature of religions. I mean, why should Scientology, or the Jehovah's Witnesses, be allowed to claim tax-free status in so many countries? Scientology, for example, is clearly a business empire, and we know from history that it's based on the delusions of a science fiction writer. We also know from documentaries exposing its practices that it's done incredible harm. And why are highly conservative religious schools from all of the major religions allowed to be protected and sometimes even funded by the state when they have been shown to cause so much harm too and often teach homophobic, misogynistic and bigoted beliefs to children? There's an interesting discussion to be had there and I think it's probably time we had one. But of course, we find talking about religion very difficult. At one extreme of a negative analysis of religion, we find a variety of beliefs, practices, and identities which have the characteristics of mental disorder. Now, this was the common way for Western academics and Christians to judge so-called primitive beliefs and practices and was rightly later shunned as a tool of colonialism. But recently, the idea is being entertained again by psychologists and often this time to talk about mainstream religious practice and belief, So there's an interesting turn of events. Of course, religions are powerful, extremely wealthy organisations which have their own best interests at heart and are always fighting tooth and nail for more power, more money and more say in society. Just think about the reassertion of blasphemy laws across the world Now, at the same time, some social studies seem to show that religious beliefs and belonging may be psychologically beneficial, even improve health and well-being. There are obviously positives and negatives at play, and because of the nature of religion, they can be very extreme indeed. For some of you, this is obvious, but for many, this is kind of like new and news. So, with religion being so varied and complex, it seems pretty easy to suggest that all of the extremes beauty and ugliness of human nature can be found across the spectrum of religious and spiritual practices and groups. As always, it's never one thing, and we should forever be suspicious of entertaining the deluded idea that we could finally say, Oh, religion is that. Well, I guess that's done and dusted. Well, good luck with that. Religion, like history, is nowhere near ever becoming done and dusted. We also continue to display an incredible inability, whether broadly speaking as liberals or conservatives, to judge all religions on equal terms. Firstly, religious studies has evolved to talk about Christianities and Buddhisms, and to make distinctions between offshoots traditions so as to account for the great variety that we can find within all uh, umbrella terms for different religions. But this already seems too much for most public discourse. And for most of us, we kind of have this knee-jerk, instinctive habit of just saying, Oh, Buddhism. We can't help it. Most public conversations about religion are also highly political and ideologically motivated. And they rarely move beyond the dead ends, which have, well, really prevented us from developing a more nuanced and evolved appreciation of the complexities and challenges of religion which captures what, for many, uh, ends up being the most important, most essential, and most powerful aspect of their lives. We know this, right? For some, religion is something to die for, to kill others for, to save others' lives for, or to give up everything for. It is incredibly powerful and continues to be so. And we know that the four horsemen of the apocalypse, whether it's Richard Dawkins or Daniel Dennett or whoever, have failed to persuade most folks to give it up entirely. Which is not to say though that their influence has not been important. We can say though, as those folks rightly identified, that Islam continues to be a spanner in the ideological works of most on the left and the west, who have a sort of collective pathology in which they seem to obsessively need to see it all as fundamentally benign to confirm their ideological commitments. Hold your horses if you're starting to panic already. What about the role of fundamentalist Christianity in conservative American politics, which is as toxic as can be? Most of its adherents there are very happy to see the secular religious divide be thoroughly muddied by their religion. Anyone with a bit of patience and a couple of brain cells working effectively can soon see that those two religions, the most dominant on this planet, serve to bring real meaning and benefit to millions, whilst also providing fodder for extremism, hatred, bigotry, misogyny, homophobia, racism and violence. But hey, what about Buddhism, you might ask? Isn't this a Buddhist-themed podcast? Yeah, yeah, we're getting there. The ubiquity of religious practice, the need for meaning, for social practices that bind and give sense to life, the desire for an authority that can guide us and not just control us, a community to which we can meaningfully belong and not just be assimilated by, the need for an identity that resonates and doesn't just weigh heavy on our shoulders, a practice that gives us material for facing an immense and uncertain world are all facets that must be acknowledged in both an overt critique of religion and a more mature beginning step in attempting to understand it more fully and its continued and necessary role in highly developed cultures and countries. Surely I and most of you listening to this are testament to the fact that we need something beyond scientific materialism and even humanism. Many of us begrudgingly accept the term spiritual as an alternative to religion but I would guess that most of you are not particularly happy with that term either and this is no small issue. In fact, many of us are either directly or indirectly attempting to establish a new vision of religiosity or secular meaning-making. This pursuit may actually be a decisive factor in how our species evolve socially, politically and even economically throughout the rest of this century. We may even go as far as to say it could be a vital factor in the survival of our species. It may be that the impulse of history and mainstream religions mean that such a pursuit will forever remain insignificant if not for a tiny privileged minority. Who knows? But these are big issues, and they deserve our thought. Religious studies itself is certainly ideologically informed, like all of the humanities really, right? And this often benevolent view of religion may mean it fails to critique adequately when critique is clearly needed. When complexity is so great, interpretation and selection are become ever more paramount in how narratives evolve. And it is not always in the public's best interest for a given group to be read neutrally when abuse, harm, and deception are so rife. Religious studies scholars may not always be the best source for an evaluation of a group or tradition. Testimonies from those who have come out the other side after years spent in a tradition can be a very, very useful counterbalance in this regard. The tradition that we'll be talking about in the conversation today has several Facebook pages put together by ex-members critiquing it, along with a website set up by survivors of that tradition. Yes, they've called themselves that. That is the weight of the experience they've had. The erasure of distinction between religious groups that promote religious practices, more or less in harmony with mainstream secular culture, and those that seek to separate themselves from that same culture, is problematic if we consider religious groups to have an ethical duty to wider society. Groups that attempt to exist outside of such norms can obviously be exciting places to inhabit but they can also be dangerous, destructive and genuinely harmful. They can also be liberating, energising spaces, spaces where we can imagine ourselves anew and experiment with asocial forms of behaviour and practices. Believe me, I am extremely grateful for having spent considerable time in many of those myself, but I don't remember one that didn't end up exhibiting some form of dysfunction, and some certainly went the way of cult-land. It is not always easy to tell which direction such groups are going to head in. This can again muddy our capacity to read groups accurately, and make informed judgments about the degree to which we will or should engage with them. This is especially challenging when so many of us come to such groups in a profound state of need, and no doubt many of you have memories and experiences of this kind of thing yourself. We must do our best to see clearly, think critically, and support a culture of both. And open communication is essential for this. After all, how many folks continue to suffer at the hands of SOGYAL or an adi da before folks within those organisations finally woke up to the harm being caused and in most cases they required a very very heavy push from outside and from ex-members. Now the NRM cult split is obviously not a black and white distinction but it is an identifiable one for the more discerning explorer and can certainly be useful in evaluating whether a given new religious movement is a cult which is to say a group that actively promotes his own self-interests along with ignorance and causes genuine suffering, whilst usually seeking to exclude itself from its duties to mainstream culture or society. And as we all know, those duties have increased since the age of Me Too, and also the need to become more responsible socially and politically and environmentally. Now, what about the role of positive bias in evaluating Buddhism and Buddhist groups? you may find it difficult to accept that a Buddhist group could be consistently malevolent or to encourage highly dysfunctional behaviour. This may even be a radical challenge for some of you, inside and outside Buddhism. Because there is a sort of positive bias towards Buddhism, if we're honest about it, right? The religion of compassion, the religion of that wonderful smiling Nobel Prize winner, the Dalai Lama, of mindfulness, of serenity, of Buddhist statues and mandalas. I mean, it rarely conjures up the image of criminality, deception, betrayal, sexual abuse, enabling abuse, overt homophobia, misogyny or racism. Let's be honest, Buddhism generally gets a free pass, even while abusers, I mean, sexual abusers such as Sogyao, get exposed for causing incredible harm. And he's just one of many. I mean, if we did a, a quick analysis of the number of Buddhist teachers who've been caught out for sexually abusing their followers, the list would be pretty long by now. There is a part of us that generally doesn't want to accept that Buddhism can go bad, like, really bad. And many may even hold to the false notion that it's always the human at fault, and that the practices and beliefs themselves are just fine, thank you very much, and couldn't possibly contribute to the problem, right? Some of you think that. Go on, be honest with yourselves. But guess what? The enablers of abuse in Christian cults, Judaic cults, Islamic cults, Hindu cults, and so on, all suffer from the same sort of bias. And of course, Buddhism is just another religion when it comes down to it. So why wouldn't it be susceptible to all the same failings we see in other religious contexts? Oh yes, it's that Buddhist exceptionalism again, right? Now, Buddhism has a long history of dysfunctionality, too. It may not suffer from the degrees of child sexual abuse we've seen in Catholicism, but it's been there in Buddhism, too. And in monasteries, most likely ever since, they were started, right? Anybody with a nuanced reading of the history of monastic culture will know what I'm talking about. It may not suffer from the jihadi fanaticism found in certain strains of Islam. Ah, but uh, hey, don't forget about those Zen Japanese death bombers in the Second World War. Oh, but you say it might not suffer from the homophobia of Christianity and Islam. Oh, uh, hold on. Even the Dalai Lama not so long ago was describing gay sex as leading to rebirth in hell. Yes, you see, there are problems here too. So I know this is quite a long introduction, but these points are important. And for some of us, they can be a real affront to some of the fantasies we continue to hold about Buddhism and spirituality. And I'm sorry if I'm bringing bad news to you by allowing some of this darkness out there to creep into your fantasies or desires towards Buddhism. But you know, religion is complex, and yes, Buddhism is a religion and we all need to grow up a bit and establish a critical means for distinguishing between groups, individuals, and practices that are harmful and dysfunctional, and therefore to be avoided, and the imperfect groups, individuals, and practices that possess some degree of awareness of their duty to wider society and therefore have a reasonably functional relationship with it. Today's group of analysis has consistently had immense difficulty occupying that ground, and it is one of the reasons why many believe it warrants the term cultish. At the very least, it exhibits a lot of cultish behaviour. One of the keys to understanding the degree of cultishness is the degree that the group promotes its own beliefs and practices over all others, the degree to which it allows some diversity of opinion and experience. It's visible in the degree to which a group will respond and even allow critique from outside, however uncomfortable, to have some impact on it, to encourage it to evolve. It's evident in those groups that actually respond to detractors eventually, rather than just defend themselves from it, explain it away, or justify it through abstract concepts such as karma. It is the difference between those groups that believe they already know everything. They already hold the best of human knowledge. They possess superior knowledge that is already at the apex of human understanding. These non-negotiable commitments to knowledge cannot help but lead to dysfunction. And today's group is very much immersed in such delusions of grandeur. But what if these are merely points on a spectrum? Well, then we might say that there are degrees of indoctrination, or trade-offs in terms of autonomy and individuality. Degrees to which the community isolates you from the world. Degrees to which it justifies real physical and psychological and spiritual harm. In joining a cult, sorry, any group, it is helpful to ask, what special kind of ignorance am I being inculcated into? What trade-offs am I being asked to make? What promises are being made here? And can it really back them up? Where do they express total certainty and will not allow any doubt? What guarantees are being made about this life and the next life and past lives? Who must I be in this tradition? What must I become or must I cease to be? Where does authority lie and what happens if I challenge it? In fact, what happens if I question any of this? We always give away something when we gain something new. And an underlying concern for all of us should be, to what degree are we willing to take responsibility for our actions and the trade-offs we make? What are we willing to sacrifice? To study dysfunctional religious groups, like today's example, is to study the fragile nature of human psychology and of human need. It's to study the desire to belong and to have a meaningful existence. In our often rational conception of Buddhism, we can easily ignore how irrational our own drives are for practicing and for committing to a Buddhist identity and tradition. But what about all of those of you that hover at the edges, that refuse to make an explicit social commitment to Buddhism? I'm spiritual, not religious, some of you say. I practice meditation. I don't mind the Four Noble Truths, but I'm not really a Buddhist, no. I'm not into that belief stuff. I just want to practice and wake up. Yeah, right. I'm gonna suggest that there is no total escape from any of this. Remember that cults can act as a reservoir of meaning and connection in a cold world. They remind us of just how unfulfilling and meaningless mainstream society can be. They highlight how inhuman modern social relations can be too and how empty a life dedicated to material and monetary pursuits ultimately is. Or to consider our current moment, how superficial the digital world can be, and how isolating technology. Whether we dip our toe in the waters of practice and feel just a mild sympathy towards Buddhism, we are still engaging in religion, and religion is still engaging with us. All right, now, you've been great in listening, and hopefully you realize why some of these points are important. The New Kadampa tradition is the topic of discussion and it's one of the UK's largest Buddhist organisations. It has been rather savvy in accumulating properties and wealth worldwide and often masks its inherent contradictions and dysfunction. It actually has a fascinating history that you might enjoy reading up on and there are plenty of resources available. It's a history that features paranoia, power grabbing, obsession and some of the worst of Tibetan Buddhism and politics despite the fact that this group claims to be pure and free of such behaviour. That's one of the first contradictions you should be aware of. The NKT has also played its hand well in manipulating those who critique it and expose its problems. The NKT is a full-on missionary form of Buddhism too. It believes we are in the end times. Does that sound familiar to some of our ex-Christian fundamentalists? It believes in its own exclusive capacity to save people from themselves and the absolute purity, perfection, and superiority of its own teachings, teacher, and practices. That, by the way, should be a warning sign always. It therefore suffers from the sort of delusion and arrogance that defines all highly sectarian and exclusivist traditions, and is very good at explaining away this fact. It falls for the age-old failing of believing itself beyond the norms of wider society. Well, of course it does. It knows everything already. It indoctrinates newcomers slowly and hides some of its oddest beliefs and most pressing demands. Kind of like Scientology. It provides a fast track to the role of teacher too and the monastic life. In fact, I've been told that you can be a fully qualified, certified Kadampa Buddhist teacher in just six months, folks poor students. It claims to be ancient and have a pure lineage going all the way back to Buddha Shakyamuni, don't they all, whilst at the same time being thoroughly modern. It claims not to be Tibetan, in fact, to be separate from the turgid, corrupt politics that defines Tibetan Buddhism and that evil doer, the Dalai Lama, whilst playing a highly sectarian game, dressing its monastics in gelug garb and talking of gompas and everything else Tibetan. In fact, Ben Joffe, a past guest of ours, wrote a great article on the NKT and its own role in white supremacist behaviour. According to Robert Thurman, it is the driving force behind the Shugden Society, which ran a very long hate campaign against the Dalai Lama. According to Reuters, that campaign was funded by the Chinese government to disseminate discord in the Tibetan community in exile. Now, I'm not saying these things. They are. Go and do some investigating if you like. It's all very interesting, and in fact a documentary could probably be made about this too. Now, one thing is for sure either way, the image of middle-class white Britons and Americans dressed up in Tibetan religious robes shouting odious slogans and waving images of the Dalai Lama as a pig at Tibetan refugees was quite the shocking image indeed. And You can see more of those if you want to go and search online. Now, the New Kadampa tradition is an odd organisation, rooted in the insecurities and paranoia of its guru, according to our guest today. Kelsen Gyatso, hailed as the third Buddha by his followers, most of whom have never met him, and many of whom have never even seen him since his disappearance a few years back. The group has been investigated numerous times, and is consistently one of the most inquired after Buddhist groups At organisations committed to informing the general public and exposing cult groups. The Colt Information Centre had already reported back in 1999. Inform, a UK-based charity set up to um, educate the general public, advise government bodies and journalists, has consistently received reports from ex-followers highlighting manipulation, abuse and vindictive attacks after leaving. And it's been the most inquired after group for many, many years. And of course that NKT denies any of this and will defend itself tooth and nail, But there are so many testimonies from ex-followers by now highlighting very similar experiences that it is hard to take the NKT seriously. But why does all this matter, you may ask? You're not in the NKT, so why should you care? Well, because the NKT is a missionary organization. It wants to keep spreading its delusion, confusion and ignorance. Because remember, it alone has the true Dharma, the purest Dharma, the third Buddha, the pure lineage. It's not just a small group of adepts hanging out in a centre somewhere. It's consistently trying to expand, grow, accumulate more properties, open more centres, send out more inadequately trained teachers, spread its sectarian practices, and it has somehow managed to get into the NHS in England and even schools where it should not be. Today's guest is Michelle Haslam. PhD clinical psychologist who works in the field of safeguarding. In speaking with her, I was saddened to discover that not much has changed since the days I was involved with them myself, which was well over 20 years ago at this point. She wrote a 59-page report. My Opinion on the New Kadampa Tradition, in which she discussed the potential harm to mental and physical health based on her experience, observations, other survivor testimonies, and psychological theory. For this, she was harassed and attacked. Her workplace was contacted soon after publishing her report with what appears to be attempts to get her fired, but she'll say more about that later. And here's a quick summary of it. She writes... It is clear that the NKT have no understanding of mental health, but strongly believe that they are qualified to offer courses on overcoming anxiety, depression and stress. They believe that they completely understand the mind, which makes them a particularly dangerous group. The NKT are not qualified to teach mindfulness in line with Western definitions of it, but still attempt to benefit financially and to draw people into their tradition through the mindfulness movement. Michel and many other survivors believe the NKT to be a highly psychologically damaging and exploitative organisation that attracts people through their attachment, trauma, depression and dissatisfaction with life. All of their practices could be potentially severely damaging to both mental and eventually to physical health as well as to people's relationships with outsiders to the tradition. Despite this, involvement with this group can feel good in the short term due to the sense of belonging, love bombing, flattery Trance states, group narcissism, and the short term benefits of spiritual bypassing in avoiding emotional pain. Michelle lists potential psychological damage which can come about from involvement with this group. They include the increasing inability to trust your own perceptions and intuition, disassociation from the body, derealization and depersonalization, repression of emotion and trauma through spiritual bypassing thought stopping and thought control, anxiety linked to fear of rebirth in hell realms, obsessive compulsive urges linked to purification of negative minds, further trauma due to experiences of of abuse within the group, which are enabled by teachings and lack of safeguarding, stress, burnout, severe cognitive dissonance due to gaslighting, misplaced loyalty and trauma bonding to the guru and the group, paranoia due to magical thinking, Oh my god, there's a lot of this, right? In particular, Michelle highlights the fact that this can be highly damaging to anybody coming to this group with pre-existing trauma. She also goes on to talk about the difficulties involved in leaving this group. and One of the sad things that comes about from reading testimonies is just to see how much ex-members have suffered afterwards. And that gets compounded by them being attacked and ridiculed and belittled in their suffering. Now, Michelle runs a website called Recovery from the New Kadampa Tradition, a resource centre for liberation from indoctrination. And for anybody looking for independent academic information on this group, you can contact www.inform.ac. And finally, Tenzin Pelyor, one of our first guests, who was highly informative on the ways that the NKT operates, runs several websites himself, which are a great resource for learning about them, but also Buddhist cults in general, including Rigpa and others. He's also got a website that talks about the challenges with the transplantation of Tibetan Buddhism to the West. And he's been very good at highlighting abuses within a whole variety of Tibetan Buddhist traditions in the West. He draws on academic material and is very mature and balanced in his own writings. And he's been consistently attacked and slandered by the NKT. And they've even made a site about him. His websites include buddhism-controversy-blog.com and info-buddhism.com. Hello and welcome back to the Imperfect Buddha podcast. It's been a little while since we talked about cults and new religious movements. Many of our regular listeners will be familiar with the Two episodes I did with Stuart before he abandoned the whole project. Stuart, where did you go, mate? And our, well, one of our first ever interviews with the wonderful Tenzin Pellior, who actually has a connection to our guest today and knows a thing or two about the organization we're going to spend some time discussing with today's guest, who is Michelle. Uh, how do I pronounce your surname? Is it Haslam?
1: Yeah, that's right, Matthew.
0: Great. So Michelle, um, many of our listeners will not be familiar with your work. You've been quite busy of late and not necessarily yeah. for good reasons, right? So perhaps we could just start off with a quick introduction. What's your, your background and why might it be relevant to the conversation we're going to have today?
1: I suppose I've got used to introducing myself recently as a clinical psychologist. That title ha- comes with costs and benefits, really. Mm. And I was previously involved with the new Kadampa tradition and also Tri Ratna, actually, that used to be the FWBO. Right. In my search for uh, meditation classes and developing my understanding of Buddhism. So I'm now an ex member. So I started speaking up about my experiences uh, back in March or April, I think now.
0: Yeah, and you put together what you defined, if I'm not mistaken, as a psychological report on the New Kadampa tradition, right?
1: The title has caused some issues, well, mainly from the NKT's end rather than anyone (laughs) else's, because it's a rather unique approach, I guess, to speak about my own experience, but also to include the themes I've read in other people's testimonies and also cultic studies literature. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a bit of a mix. And what you actually call it is up to the reader, I think.
0: <laughs> okay, but it was quite a unique take, right? I mean, this is not something that most people put together on a weekend or necessarily have the professional training or background to construct in a, well, I, I guess in an analytical and functional way to try and make some of these uh, experiences that you had and many other people have better known in the general public right amongst those especially who are yeah. dabbling in these kinds of groups which can end up being something that they don't present themselves as
1: yeah sure so through my own sort of understanding and healing i'd been reading all of this stuff anyway and it just seemed like something that was worth sharing so um i started to to write about it and then i I started doing YouTube videos, brief ones, as you know, people don't have uh, amazing concentration spans always these days. (laughs) Then I started to get feedback on the videos through YouTube of people agreeing with my perception and sharing their view, which allowed me to feel more confident in my assumptions and my approach. And so that gave me Uh, more to put in my report but what also started happening was I also started to receive trolling which also I could put in my report (laughs) Um, to back up the the things that I was saying so it became um, a bit of a, a ginormous project really in the end which I then felt unfortunately quite rushed to complete because they were aware that I was a critic and that I was writing it and I didn't like being in that state of anticipation of an attack for too long. Mm-hmm. Um, so it all got a little bit out of hand, I'll be honest, Matthew.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's probably worth just adding a couple of the points here that a lot of people listening might not be able to believe, really. And I think that the one of the big issues with the Nukadampa tradition is that they They operate in a very similar manner to Scientology, and one of their primary concerns is controlling the public image, right? So they're trying to control Mm. the narrative about themselves and the way they are presented in the public view. as you rightly just hinted at and we'll, we'll get on to this uh, no doubt they have a tendency to attack their critics and especially their ex-followers in ways that i think a lot of people would find quite disturbing and absolutely yeah yeah and i think i think one of the things that happens within these kinds of dynamics is that people can end up sort of playing the game the nkt is trying to play uh, instead of just stopping and just recognizing that hold on we've got a buddhist group well, at least it claims to be Buddhist. I think that's actually quite debatable from certain Mm. perspectives. And what they're actively doing is attacking people, attacking vulnerable people, and they have a number of dysfunctional behaviours which they either deny or they excuse away. And the actual just the sort of starting conversation about some of these topics often gets sort of left behind by the need to kind of deal with this, this, this game of controlling the public image and discourse. To a lot of folks who may not be familiar with the NKT, they're kind of everywhere, right? You'll find them in all the big towns and cities, even small ones. They've been uh, silently creeping into the NHS in the UK
1: and Mm. schools.
0: One thing I'm sure you'll want to talk about is the fact that they even come out with this wonderful fantasy that they're teaching mindfulness. I think in Uh, one of your more interesting articles on the website, which we'll talk about next, uh, it's hard to argue that they are teaching anything that most folks would recognise as meditation.
1: They're certainly not teaching mindfulness, that's for sure. It's questionable whether they're teaching meditation um, in any way that would be defined um, by someone else's meditation. But they are so convincing at telling you that it's meditation. And if you don't really know any different, and you haven't been to another type of class, and you are perhaps vulnerable, then you wouldn't know
0: let's talk a little bit more about how you got involved. And perhaps we can use that Mm. to bridge to how some of the behavior going on in in NKT groups and some of the, let's say, the thinking behind the kind of practices and what should I call it? I'm trying to avoid saying certain (laughs) heavy words, but let's say the indoctrination that they tend to kind of push, how it may actually be affecting a lot of people who are unwittingly getting involved in, well, what I can't help but think of as highly dysfunctional spiritual practice. But before we go that way let's talk a little bit about you how, did, how is it that you came to get involved with the nkt you spoke about Triratna as well was that before the nkt or after and why was it you know you, you started and you decided well this this could be something for me i'm going to give this a go
1: there's quite a few different factors there that would have made me sort of vulnerable to recruitment if you want to use that word mm. which i can't sort of talk in detail about because we'd be here all day sure. um but i'd say that Yeah, I had an interest in Buddhism and meditation, uh, which partly came through the mindfulness movement. um, And also there's a lot of positive prejudice against, yeah, in favor of Buddhism. So um, your guard is kind of down. And I didn't have much understanding of cultic groups or cultic environments or dynamics. So I wasn't really looking out for those warning signs. And I'd just come back from living abroad and I'd come back to the UK and I went to a festival called Buddhafield in Devon. And that was run by Tree Ratna, actually, so that I didn't meet anybody from the NKT there. But I started to go on retreats and to meet some young people from the Tree Ratna movement. And it was all sort of more emotionally warm, really, um, in Tree Ratna um, initially. Um, so less kind of emotional invalidation and no sort of focus on the idea that we should be happy all the time. And then I, I'd also lived in a intentional community in the past. And I'd had the intention to live in a, a community again because there were lots of benefits. But the community that I'd lived in, there were quite a lot of mental health difficulties and lack of sort of management around that. And I'd got it in my head that meditation might help people manage their mental health. So when I sort of discovered that you could live in NKT centres, which are marketed as uh, supportive communities, which I would argue they really are not, Mm -hmm. I sort of thought this was a great idea. I was really keen to live in community again. Um, particularly if there was an emphasis around sort of sustainability, which mm. actually there isn't at all in the NKT. They don't really do anything that that helps the environment at all. But I had in my head um, this idea that living commun- in community was uh, pooling resources. And, you know, if everybody was taking responsibility for their own well-being through showing their willingness to uh, work on their mental state, then I guess I imagined that people would have quite, they would take quite a lot of personal responsibility. Mm. I also thought that it would be like a community because there was a cafe and shared meals and the building that I first moved into was uh, kind of quaint and cute. And, and there were people milling around and and the adverts state that it's a supportive spiritual community that will basically help you in your development Mm. and that you'll have work-life balance. Um, And all of these claims are completely contradictory to what people write in their testimonies about the NKT. Uh, But unfortunately, I hadn't read those.
0: Right, right. Yeah, and it could be quite difficult to come across that information as well. Um, But I'm not not sure, from my experience of living in an NKT centre as well, well, that was almost pre-internet, actually, when I was there. It was quite a while ago. So access to this kind of information is not so readily available. But... Uh Mm. I think the NKT has also ridden the sort of the the coattails of the whole 1970s 1980s alternative communities wave and also the new age wave of the 1990s which was you know the the period in which I I spent time with them. It's interesting just how insular these communities are and maybe that's uh, something worth speaking to as well. You know there's this idea of self-sufficiency isn't there in terms of Not just the spiritual platter on offer, but also the idea that, you know, you actually don't need to think critically or engage critically with their teachings, with their practices, with their habits and so forth, right? I think that tends to, well, certainly it doesn't create an environment of critical engagement. And of inquiry that goes beyond. Well, I, I would I would suggest almost the sort of normalization of becoming an NKT acolyte and follower. So, I mean, did you find yourself becoming one of those at some point too, or were you always sitting a bit uncomfortably at the edge, but you just kind of went along with it?
1: Yeah, I'd say I was definitely in the uncomfortable on the edge um, category. Partly because, you know, I worked full time outside of the community, whereas most people were, you know, they were really engulfed. And I worked as a clinical psychologist. So, you know, I was reading about the neuroscience behind trauma and reading a wide range of books. And uh, I'd also been thinking about, you know, exploring how NKT Dharma might not be. Uh, you know, the route I would go down because I'd been to other groups. So I was quite sort of, I was a bit more impartial, but I don't think, you don't realise how susceptible you are. You might think, well, I'm an an intelligent person, or, you know, I've got a qualification in uh, this or that, and, you know, I'm sure I can protect myself. But if you're living in a building where the messages are written on the walls, (laughs) yeah, literally, and you walk past them, them, you know, many times a day, and you're surrounded by people who think that they hold the ultimate truth and they speak very confidently. Then you're far more vulnerable than you realise. Um, and I didn't know that you lived in a centre, actually.
0: Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I did. <laughs>
1: so it's a particularly, you know, intense experience, obviously, uh, compared yeah. to yeah. Yeah. just popping in once a week to a class. Yeah. And yeah, even though I remained, you know, I still had some, some doubts and concerns. Mm. I still became more indoctrinated than I had ever intended. And, and when I left and, you know, now I look back, I think, you know, I can't believe how much that affected my thinking and my behavior. Uh, so yeah, it's, uh, you're not protected just through being someone who likes to read other books or has understood psychology you know perhaps if i'd studied more social psychology i might have understood <laughs> a little bit more about what was happening
0: mm. but um yeah
1: yeah,
0: yeah and, uh, it's a reminder as well that um you know human needs run very very deep and groups can be extremely seductive to the point that we're quite willing to close one eye in order to have a certain kind of need absolutely met, right i mean y- yeah. you know about this Better than I do, but uh, I remember my experience of living in the at the NKT center that I did. Uh, it was Amitabha Center, and and I guess like you, I was always somebody with one foot in and one foot out. I certainly had my own moments of being seduced, and even thought about you know taking on robes at some point, which wow. is yeah. which is you know laughable now. But uh, <laughs> yeah. you know I can uh, have some sort of compassion for the me that was then. I think one of the things that makes me angry when I get angry about whether it's the NKT or it's Scientology or it's certain expressions of the Catholic Church over here in Italy, it's the profound dishonesty that goes on within these groups and the fact that some of the long-term members are certainly all too aware of the games they're playing and I think they are quite nefarious and maybe that's something we're, we're going to move towards in a moment because I think that's something that needs to be expressed. I think a lot of people are still naive about these groups. They still kind of think well they're harmless and yeah some people get seduced into it but it's not that bad really and and if it's Buddhist it really can't surely, be that Surely yeah. Right? Because surely it's just yeah. the Dharma right? And then we see you know people's lives ruined and people burnt very badly and, and people giving up the entire dreams that they, they brought in the first place it's kind of torn to shreds by this the callousness and the, the manipulativeness of these these organizations. And I just want to mention one point, which we'll mention again at the end, is that you've put together this great website, which features your report and, and various stories from what have become known as NKT survivors, which is quite dramatic. But uh, perhaps people understand why they're called that if they start reading some of these testimonies. But one of the things I liked is that you're, you're pooling resources And there are a bunch of articles about the kind of behavior that goes on in NKT centers. And of course, it should be mentioned that these behaviors are not just limited to the more cultic style Buddhist groups. I mean, you can find them in all organizations to some degree. And in Western alternative spirituality, many of our listeners will be familiar with terms like magical thinking or the cult of perfectionism, Mm -hmm. right? meditation as hypnosis the role of codependency and so forth so let's do this let's talk a little bit about what it is that finally got you out of the nkt center and then let's move on and start talking about some of these themes that general listeners might find uh, useful to to hear a bit more about yeah what was the trigger then that finally got you out of that nkt center
1: well um unfortunately i ended up dating a nkt teacher um yes Well, he wasn't a teacher when I met him, but he became one very Mm. quickly, which is very easy to do because they are very desperate for teachers. And you don't have to have had much experience. You could have just been there a a couple of months, you know. (laughs) Um, Right, yeah. Yeah. And unfortunately, I didn't realize at the time – that I was actually dating a hero narcissist within the hero narcissistic system. So I was being gaslighted by him, but also by the teachings. Even though I was going to work talking to my clients about, you know, what is abuse and what is narcissism and all those things, I hadn't really understood that I was actually being spiritually abused because it's so insidious and slow and, and gradual and long term. But I knew I felt awful. Uh, I knew mm. that much. That I was feeling more confused and anxious and unhappy the longer I lived there. And, and those that, that knew me knew that too. I guess the sort of catalyst was, so what what can happen um, is that people who have narcissistic traits, they are enabled within the NKT because the NKT will always support the abuser and not the abused. They will always say that abuse is just all in your mind. Um, It's the result of your past, your karma. If you've still got an impure mind, then you'll perceive an impure person. Seems totally ridiculous now that I, you know, let any of this affect me but it over time it, it did but what made me realize it was abuse was when I received some of this in an email and I saw it in black and white <laughs> right and when I actually saw it written down as a very clear attempt to manipulate me hmm. into accepting unacceptable behavior I, I couldn't deny it anymore and I, and I sent that email to family and friends outside of the group And they said, Michelle, this isn't Buddhism. This is abuse. Yeah. And I made a plan to to make a swift exit because there was nobody in the group at the center who was going to support me with that. They were only going to gaslight me further. I was actually getting into a crisis point. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And so I left and um, it was a huge relief. And when I left, I found members of the general public to be so much more kind and warm and mm-hmm. generous and all the things that that Buddhist practitioners, you know, aim to be mm-hmm. than I than I had in, in the center. And and that's when it really hit me. And I, I realized that I'd actually just been living with people with sadistic and masochistic tendencies.
0: <laughs> Yeah, yeah, there's quite a lot there.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah. it was kind of extreme, I guess, but I, I needed something to, and most people report that they needed something to really hit them in the face, to sort of wake mm. them up. Mm. Yeah. Um, and waking up is kind of a strange term to use for realising that you're in a Buddhist cult because <laughs> it really does feel like an enlightenment when you realise, hang on a minute, this isn't Buddhism... Yeah, you know, and of course not everyone in the group is a narcissist, but there are lots of people who get away with abuse um, because of the lack of safeguarding, as you know, and they're never challenged. And so over time, I believe that the group, without any checks and balances in place, it just becomes more sociopathic, really.
0: Um. You pointed out a couple of things that were true when I was a member of the group, which is that um, they're desperate to um, recruit followers – Uh, They tend to push um, newbies to become monastic as well, as soon as they show any interest or inclination. Mm. And as you you pointed out, and I think this is really important, they have a habit of um, pushing people to become teachers. And I think we should be suspicious in calling their teachers teachers, because that's not really what they're doing. Mm. I don't think they have the the faintest idea what they're doing or what they're talking about. Uh. I think there's an extremely high degree of incompetence. You know, because, as you said, there are not there's not, okay, there are not safeguards, there's not a hierarchy of competence in which, you know, you have people with uh, years of experience that know how to manage complex communities, but also a complex organisation like the NKT. I think there is a kind of a lot of muddling their way through. Absolutely. And this is what throws people, it's quite clear that, that most of the time, they're not deliberately trying to cause harm. They're just kind of lost in their own delusion. One thing, which is the point I raised briefly before, is that I think some of the people at the top of the the pyramid, so to speak, are aware of what they're doing, though. Mm. And I think they do Mm. hold responsibility for these different layers of individual and group dysfunction that continue to play out and continue to cause problems for for people like yourself.
1: Lots of people who move into these centres, they're really vulnerable, and they've perhaps been love-bombed, and sort of flattery and guilt is used to suggest that they could teach. And there's no checks on their background and nobody looks out for warning signs in the, in their mental health either. But if you don't have much going on in your life and um, your self-esteem isn't that great, and someone says, you know, you can sit on the throne and channel geshe <laughs> you know, that could feel like, oh, okay. Wow. Something, wow. I'm worth something, you know, and I'm doing something special and it's all pure and special and yeah. beautiful and wonderful and let's rejoice and, you know, and so people sit on the throne when they they actually really don't know uh, what they're doing at all and don't know that they're teaching a highly sectarian form of the Dharma Um, and they haven't, they don't have any supervision. They really should not be allowed to mess with people's minds. Mm -hmm. You know, when you actually think about how vulnerable people are when they're in a trance state or they're in a state of relaxation and you are planting suggestions basically into their minds. Um, that is just ridiculous when when you think about it and i agree with you that those people are um they're being exploited but a lot of them are well in intentioned you know they believe yeah, that the yeah. dharma is pure and that they have a chance to share it and and that's special you know i got on the throne for them once or twice just covering like uh you know a friday night meditation myself so i can't really judge but i agree with you that the people the teachers who've been around a long time and, you know, who are in, in the inner circle very much know what is going on and are heavily involved in policing and non-disclosure agreements and ferrying people away when they abuse uh, rather than enforcing any consequences. And they're the ones who attack critics Not all teachers, obviously, but the most senior ones, their handwriting style and the way that they speak, you know, matches some of the attacks on survivors.
0: Mm-mm. So maybe we can talk a little bit about that before we move on to some of the themes I wanted to discuss. You've um, suffered attacks uh, since leaving and publishing your report, as have many ex-NKT followers. And I just want to remind listeners about that, because again, people find this very difficult to believe. The NKT as an organisation appears to be deliberately targeting ex-followers, right? And engaging in some kind of vindictive attack. Yes, and that's something you've experienced, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's guaranteed that if you speak up in public and they have a way to to threaten you, that they will. It might not happen if you just quietly disappear. Um, it's it's only if you if you know things and you say that you're about to share those things then the attacks are almost immediate. It's almost as if the narcissistic rage, that one or two of the the senior members, they can't control it. Um, it cu- usually comes within 24 hours. Um, it's very predictable. So it was only, I think, 18 hours or so after my analysis or report, whatever you want to call it, went viral, that they emailed my workplace. And I was warned by Inform and, um, you know, everyone else, you know, this is going to come immediately. Are you ready? And I thought I was, but it turns out I wasn't really, Mm. um, yeah, I wasn't as prepared. Because although I knew that they do this and I'd seen some of the evidence, you don't know how it feels until it happens to you. So... Yeah, it's, uh, re- I think it's really hard for people to believe because you just, you know, I've tried to explain it to, to some of my friends who have been involved in the past or still pop in for a tea and cake. The cognitive dissonance that it triggers is extremely painful because, you know, wishful thinking, wanting to see the best in people, wanting to believe, it just blows your mind when you see the extent and the insidious nature of some of the attacks. It's so pathological that if you have to then accept that the nature of this group, that this is the leadership's way of dealing with criticism, of course, then you've got to start thinking about the whole system. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't just say, you know, this is a lone wolf, somebody who's just really struggling with you know, mentally. And, you know, this is very clearly coming from the leadership. And and when you really accept that, it's painful.
0: Yeah, and shocking. Uh, It's shocking that a, a group that's supposedly married to the ideals of Buddhism the reduction of suffering and ignorance should actually be instigating suffering and promoting ignorance. And that's the bit that still continues to anger me personally. I mean, I find it uh, both disgusting and outrageous that they would be involved in these two practices. And I think that more people should, as you were saying, you know, recognize that and accept the fact that that may destabilize and even dismantle certain ideals or positive beliefs we'd like to hold on to about Buddhism more generally, but also in this case, a specific Buddhist group
1: everything really is topsy-turvy. If you become attached to spending time in a group, in a certain building, then you are not practicing non-attachment or letting go or reducing your attachment to your reputation or any of those things. You are getting more and more entrenched in a cult. (laughs) So, that is inevitable. And of course, it becomes impossible to, to practice the teachings and remain entrenched in a narcissistic group. So then what happens is people's behavior doesn't match up with their words. It becomes clear that you're all being massive hypocrites, basically. Your livelihood, your safety, your security is tied up in the continuation of this group and this building earning enough money to keep the heating running because you you don't have a life anymore outside of the group maybe and you don't have a way of ensuring that you have a roof over your head and so it's impossible to be practicing what you're preaching and they have a lot to lose you know this is a this is a very wealthy organization so yeah i guess it's just inevitable But still, we find it really hard to accept.
0: And you've had a a website dedicated to you, is that correct?
1: Oh, yes, I have. com.
0: yes. And you have to think, right? I mean, what kind of mind would do that, right? What kind of mind would invest the time and energy into inventing a slanderous site basically designed to make you look bad? Yeah. That's something worth meditating on, I think, for for a while Ooh, if you're in the NKT. Yeah, right. yeah.
1: So I'll just briefly explain the the uh the timing of, of that and then mm. yeah, say a bit more about it. So the email to my workplace, which came um the day after my analysis, obviously they had a bit of time because they knew what I was doing via my YouTube videos, which made me a bit too vulnerable really. So they emailed my workplace pretending to be a concerned psychologist. They sort of realized they had to change tack. They're very good at the fake concern thing. So I don't think they realized that I would get hold of this email and I shared it. So then they were exposed. Claiming that the people the write testimonies are mentally ill is a cult classic. Clearly, it wouldn't be from a genuine psychologist. I think because they weren't expecting me to share it, they then had to do some damage limitation. Uh, It was coming up to summer festival. I think controlling the internal narrative would have been more the aim rather than to destroy my career at that point or to control the external narrative. But obviously, if they could also destroy my career, that would be a bonus. Yeah, so they wrote this website claiming uh, all sorts of things and they still maintain that they are a psychologist who sort of analyzes my mental state online, which an ethical psychologist would never do. And of course, they claim that all of my potential suffering within the NKT is minimal because I must have had pre-existing trauma through the loss of my father. And they, of course, try and blame the whole thing on the fact that I had a relationship within the NKT. So that's only one example of the many attacks. And it's not the the worst, but there are people who've received, their parents have received funeral brochures with their name on, you know, there were some really sick things that have been done. But obviously, the website about me is the most easily viewable by the general public. So I exposed them again for writing it, which has significantly dented their reputation and will continue to do so because I will continue to share as much as I can that this is what they do.
0: Mm, Yeah. Your website, as I suggested before, is pooling resources and bringing together other ex-NKT members who've suffered at the hands of this group, right? So people listening to this can go and, and take a good look. Can you just remind us of the name of the website?
1: So it's org, And so it started off with just having my report on it, which is why it's got that name. But um, it's more now sort of pooling resources, as you say, that includes links to testimonies that were already available before I came along. And my Um, sort of deconstruction of um, the attacks that I've received and yeah people can share if they want to add anything there wasn't a website before that brought everything together so that was definitely needed and there was a Facebook exposing group but you have to scroll down you know to to find things and it's not very easily accessible. And um, yeah, and I guess because of my background, you know, I'm bound by an ethical code and people are likely to take it a little bit more seriously when a clinical psychologist is saying, no, I'm sorry, but this isn't meditation and they don't understand mental health although they claim that they do, and these people have severe trauma, we can't just keep abandoning them and um, we need to educate people on how to, to help their loved ones who've suffered. And I, and I know what you mean about the word survivor almost sounding a bit dramatic, but when you read about what some of these people have been through, I would absolutely agree that they are survivors of decades some of them, of spiritual abuse, at least spiritual abuse, but some of them physical, financial, you know, all kinds. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I would say they absolutely are.
0: Again, just trying to gain perspective on all this, I mean, just the mere fact that there are at least two Facebook pages dedicated to exposing the dysfunction that is at the heart of the NKT should tell you something, first of all. Exactly, um, yeah. Right, whatever view you might eventually take, the mere fact that it exists means something is amiss. Let's talk a little bit about some of the the articles that are on that website because I think they're interesting and they connect nicely to some of the themes that we spoke about. Stuart and I, when talking about different Buddhist groups and their dysfunctions, and you know that included, of course, the NKT, but we also talked about the the SKG and Triratna and Sogyal Rinpoche, who's obviously come out this year as being a sexual abuser. And mm. We keep seeing, unfortunately, more and more guru figures being exposed for getting up to no good, but I think one of the differences between many of these dysfunctional Buddhist groups in the West and the NKT is that these groups are often very much guru-led, and it's the guru who's up to no good. In the NKT, of course, the guru has disappeared. We've no idea what happened to him. doesn't really matter that much necessarily, but it seems to be that the dysfunction is um, across the group as a whole, and that some of the cultic behaviour that we see in like Christian cults are are really, really evident in the NKT. And anybody, I think, going in with a critical view would start to notice them quite quickly. And we might start with is magical thinking. Could you speak to magical thinking and how it takes place within the NKT? You mentioned a couple of buzzwords already like perfection and pure teaching and transmitting or channeling the guru. If you were to tie that into the theme of magical thinking, what what would you say?
1: There's lots of magical thinking in the NKT. I mean, when you first go along, if you just go along to a general programme class, they kind of keep that out of it. I think they know it would freak newcomers out. So they just start with the sort of you need to sort of work on being happier through your own mind approach, which does fit in, although it's an extreme view, with a lot of Western psychology and self-help materials and spiritual teachings from other groups. So that may not um, sort of set off alarm bells for you. It's only really if you get further involved in the group or you attend a foundation program class or beyond that the magical thinking becomes more obvious. Or perhaps if you attend a festival or an empowerment, that's when the, the magical thinking would become clearer. But they think that obviously that geshe is an enlightened being and that he's omniscient. But they also yeah, believe that he sort of functions a bit like a god as well as a grandfather figure who can sort of intervene in your life. So an example would be, I went to a festival and I thought I'd benefited at the time. I was told, oh, Geschler always arranges things for when we need them. (laughs) And now this festival is on the same weekend every year. It's organized through thousands of people. It wasn't arranged for me because I was having a bit of a tough time, but um, this is the kind of thing that people Will say so. I say that the magical thinking mainly is around Gessler. There's a lot of emotional contagion and a lot of infatuation with Gessler. And when we're under the influence of fervor, which I've recently had explained to me by an expert, Dr. Yuval Laor, when we're under the influence of this fervor, this state of infatuation, we have massive blind spots. So even though there might be huge contradictions in what we're being told, we're more blind to that when we're in this state of infatuation or feeling awe towards um, the teachings or the the group or the, the guru. I never did feel comfortable with any of that. But I just sort of thought, well, that's just got out of hand for some people. You know, I don't have to believe that I can follow a more secular buddhist approach and still kind of be somehow involved in this group but that isn't how it works in the nkt you must be in love with geshla basically because they don't teach anything other than his dharma and obviously there's a lot of the focus on how fortunate you are and how generous geshla is and how we wouldn't have all these buildings we wouldn't have these beautiful temples if it wasn't for his kindness so you're basically a child of geshla
0: Yeah, and that leads nicely on to codependency in the way it's promoted within the group. You used a couple of terms there, you know, grandfather figure, father figure, all knowing, wise, omniscient guru who's constantly watching you. As you rightly said, I mean, that's that's, that's a god, isn't it, basically? But it's also something akin to a dysfunctional god in the form, perhaps, of a dictator, right? This is an absolute authority which knows everything within your mind. And I think there's something to be said there as well about this obsession with the mind. And personal responsibility which you touched on earlier in our conversation could you say something about that as well the, the this kind of um this idea that suffering it's all on you It's just your mind. You are the the magic, somehow the magic creator of your uh, entire landscape of, you know, emotional difficulty and mental difficulty. Um, What do you think about that? I mean, because that in itself is almost a form of magical thinking too, right? Because it seems to posit, on the other hand, that you could somehow, if you were just in control enough, if you were just sharp enough with your mind, then you could suddenly radically uh, remove all suffering from your existence. And eventually, just like this miraculous being geshe Do the same for other people too.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's all highly contradictory, actually. And that's one of the characteristics of cultic groups is that the ideology is highly confusing. um, And you're given information overload. You're led to believe that you lack understanding uh, when you're new, and it will all eventually become clearer. Yeah, I mean they believe that they completely understand the mind even though when you get people on a one to one basis they admit that they don't understand mental health. But I'd say the some of the principles, you know, you could be vulnerable to believing it if you had even studied psychology because there are lots of approaches that teach that positive thinking would help you be more in control of your mood. It's just an extreme form of that, really, that's used in a way to spiritually bypass any emotional pain. But that can feel quite good in the beginning. And it may be that in the beginning, you actually are in less pain than before, especially if you believe that you're going to get even better at this and you're part of a group that's all collectively getting better at this. I was reading an an article earlier by B. Schofield, who hunts down gurus, about the law of attraction teachings. And, you know, there's a lot of teachings out there, you know, books that have sold millions of copies, where it's all just about how you create your own reality through your own mind. I am yet to hear anyone who isn't white and at least middle class say these things, to be honest. (laughs) Um, You know, If you um, are in a war zone or, uh, you know, you're being Mm -hmm. abused, Mm -hmm. you're not supposed to be happy and you haven't got control over how you feel. Your nervous system has control over how you feel Mm. in a lot of situations. And so unfortunately, what happens is you're totally all up in your head with these very cognitive, confusing techniques for overcoming perfectly healthy human feelings that keep you safe. And keep you from repeating the same mistakes and um, getting into the same dodgy situations over and over again. And I started to override some of these healthy feelings when I was living in an NKT centre to the point where by the end I was an absolute wreck because you you start to doubt your own intuition because obviously your body and your emotions are the source of your intuition. And so if you meddle with them and you try and override them with some teaching on how your abuser is actually a perfect expression of Buddha nature, when actually what you need to do is you're already a codependent who puts up with too much abuse and you're just reinforcing it. And they are getting worse in their behavior and you're enabling it. And what you actually need to do is be practicing assertiveness and and understanding your boundaries and and what Mm -hmm. abuse is. So unfortunately, I think these teachings are used a lot in in spiritual groups um, to give us this idea that we are in control. But actually, the group is indoctrinating us to, in the end, have less control and less autonomy and less independence mm-hmm. and less critical thinking yeah. skills.
0: Yeah, and there's something to be said for the role of, you know, the whole neoliberal ideology in, in all of this, right, in which the the individual ends up becoming the, the locus of, of meaning and responsibility for everything. We say economically, of course, right, in which, you know, we are all responsible now for our own economic condition, mm. right, instead of the systems I think it's a wonderful promise. I mean, it's a wonderful fantasy and it's a wonderful dream to believe that somehow I could be, you know, in some form of total control of my existence. But as you as is obvious, I think when anybody starts to think about this for a moment, it's absolute madness and can only lead to psychological dysfunction to take on such a ridiculous idea.
1: Yeah. And there's even arguments now that mindfulness, if it is actually mindfulness, as it's as it's saying it is, unlike in the NKT, that that can be used as a panacea, you know, in the workplace or in certain environments, it can be used to suggest that, well, if you're not happy, it's because you just can't focus enough on the present.
0: Yeah, right. Yeah, of course.
1: Nothing to do with the working conditions or the hours or, you know, of course, this is a cynic. I'm a little bit cynical these days. But, you know, a person could practice mindfulness in their own free time in their own environment, and they may get some benefits. But the mindfulness movement went crazy out of control. A lot of people report that they actually feel worse because, on top of the difficulties they already had, they now feel like they're supposed to be this meditation mindfulness w- wizard. Yeah, yeah. On top, when they perhaps can't concentrate because they've got complex trauma, and the meditation on prescription has made them have adverse effects or or made them feel quite inadequate more so than they already. Mm-hmm felt when you know as someone with complex trauma often you do get stigmatized or you know people don't understand what's happening for you Mm -hmm. so it's quite a sad state of affairs really
0: yeah it is um again it's a rich topic we could probably talk about it for an hour or two but yeah one thing i I will mention just in case folks missed it uh, ron purser came on a while back and we talked about mindfulness and the Mm. role of um ideology in in promoting these kind of delusional ideas about what mindfulness is what it should be and uh you know just really challenging this this myth that we should all be doing it and that it's some kind of wonderful magical cure for all of society's ills and as you've just confirmed that's just simply not the case but i'm looking at your website now and it is uh new going to suggest we talk about meditation a little bit more within the NKT. But I just want to mention some of the mm. the headings, because I think they will whet the appetites of some of our listeners and send them there immediately to read up on things. Here's a couple. So we've got misleading and unethical advertising, uh, psychological neglect, and the tendency to encourage psychological disturbance, a religious fervor in the New Kadampa tradition. And again, reading that, folks will probably see how that emerges in other groups too including political groups of Mm. course Um, yeah and then lack of mindfulness practice in this case but in terms of disassociation and hallucination And Mm -hmm. I like this one, emptiness, nihilism, and derealization. And I'm going to use Mm. that as a launch point into giving a bit of time over to thinking about, or talking about, I should say, the kind of meditation practice they get up to in the NKT. And you've asked a question here, which is, is it actually a form of hypnosis? And I think Mm. when you couple that, right, this idea of emptiness as nihilism, and the denial of reality, and then you sort of plug into that space, these ideas which are taken on uncritically the kind of hypnosis that I think I might have seen when I was at the NKT starts to become more evident Um, I'll just say one more thing the thing that actually prompted my leaving the NKT and I wrote an article about it as well was actually nothing that we've spoken about um, of yet It was what I ended up calling uh, Buddha-speak or NKT-speak or the parroting of certain sort of tropes. Mm. And I think if there's anything that's an indicator that people really have lost their capacity to think independently and are perhaps entering into a cult-like space is when they all start repeating the same language, the same phrases, and they all do so with very visible uh, facial expressions. And I think you probably know what I'm talking about, right? Mm-hmm, these kind of vacuous smiles, these vague sort of wise-looking expressions. Um, mm. I remember seeing that and saying, hold on, something's not quite right here. And yeah. I started in questioning people about the language they were using and meditation. And what I found was not a lot of awareness, really, or understanding. Let's talk about meditation then, hypnosis and the role of spiritual tropes. Can you say something about your understanding of that within the NKT?
1: So the the first few minutes of a class, which usually involve a breathing meditation, that could potentially be harmless on its own if the person didn't have acute trauma and they weren't then being sort of emotionally or spiritually manipulated. But in the NKT, that practice is used to settle the mind but really what that means is to put you in a state where you're more suggestible and more relaxed so that you then focus on the doctrine and then this doctrine is sort of um, it's taught to you using these quite repetitive phrases like you said with I mean the teachings themselves are quite long and quite extensive but The person is normally, they've got the same way of talking as Geshla. You know, I've seen middle-aged women talk like they're a, you know, a Tibetan old man. You know, they take on the gestures of the leader. And this happens in in most groups too. They gesture towards their hearts to indicate their mind because that's the belief that your your mind is actually at your heart. And so um the groupthink is instilled in you whilst you're in a suggestible state and you have been probably in the shrine room for a couple of hours by now. You might be tired, but you might feel quite relaxed and you might think, the, the teaching's beautiful and so you don't mind this feeling of perhaps being hypnotized by it. Sometimes the teacher even has a hypnotic voice, but you maybe just aren't on guard for protecting your mind from from being controlled or having your intuition interfered with because you just don't really know a lot about how cultic groups operate. Or you might be thinking, well, I'm just a dumb human, like they say, stuck in samsara. I keep suffering. I keep getting things wrong and I'm still, you know, I'm still unhappy. So who knows? I'll Maybe I'm just willing to, to give that up. Repetitive phrases tend to come more when people study the books, I think. In foundation program, for example, people take exams where all you do is you repeat back what, certain sections of the book say word for word and so you're not engaging with the material with a critical mind or with any doubt allowed you're just repeating it and so people who've been around for a while and have studied on these programs and are perhaps spending time together they just tend to repeat the teachings word for word in that sort of parroting as you mentioned yeah
0: yeah yeah
1: and then, of course, the prayers also repeat um, slightly different versions of the teachings, but mm-hmm. the principles are still there. Yeah. And some people listen to these prayers or in, or engage in these prayers more than once a day. And so they are indoctrinating themselves and being indoctrinated, but they may never come to view it as Indoctrination, because the teachings are suggesting that you're actually choosing to control your mind according to wisdom and compassion. Yeah. You actually think that you are doing yourselves and all other living beings a favour. Yeah. yeah, I'm not yeah, sure if that yeah. covers your question because there's so much we could talk about on this topic.
0: Uh, there, there is, yeah, <laughs> and it's so rich. Yeah, it is. It is, and you know, because time is is uh, always an issue with these conversations. I think one thing I'd like to end with, um, just for the last 10 minutes or so, is, you know, what it would take for this organisation to, to mend its ways. Because the thing that I still find highly disappointing is that, you know, as a, an organisation which is supposedly functioning within service to wisdom, insight and compassion, it seems to display very little of it. Towards mm. you know current and ex followers and a, the biggest sort of um, let's say down to earth recognition of of the dysfunctional nature of this group is the fact that it refuses to engage with address and respond to critique. Mm. What would it take, do you think, for this group to kind of wake up to its own contradictions and start to become a group that's that's far more aware of its own failings and dysfunction and therefore become less of a source of suffering in this world?
1: I used to, and this is very common, hope for change within the NKT. You know, I used to talk to ex-members about safeguarding, you know, how can we basically force them through our testimonies to put some safeguarding in place for vulnerable. These are extremely vulnerable people, a lot of them. I think that's an important process to go through. But I have, and many ex-members already have, as well reached the conclusion that that it's not going to change and and that's really um hard to accept and I, I remember back in my the very one of the first YouTube videos I did where I it was kind of like a confession and I was very upset and I think you commented on it and I said in that I was absolutely desperate and I I'd just read a load of testimonies and I felt absolutely disturbed and Like I'd enabled the group Mm. and because of my profession, I felt really ashamed about that. And in that video, I said, narcissists don't change. What the hell are we going to do about this? People commented with, you know, what what can we do to warn others? What can we do to get people to listen to us to say, look, this is a potentially highly dangerous group that shouldn't be infiltrating the, the national health system or schools? I have kind of accepted that now that the behaviours that I've seen since then, I was naive to begin with. I thought really just for their own reputation saving that following my report, they might issue a sort of fake apology to anyone that kind of feels they have been harmed, even if that didn't really mean anything. Most organisations do that just to make themselves look compassionate, but the Mm -hmm. NKT can't even do that. They just attacked me knowing that I'd already written a whole report on how they attack people. But they thought they'd get away with it this time because they changed tactics slightly. And what they thought when they wrote that website, it's like they don't understand how pathological and desperate their attempts appear to outsiders because mm, they're right. just too far, too far gone, I think. And there are experts that I've spoken to who study these kinds of behaviours across Buddhist groups, and I have been told that they think that they're above the law. They're not interested in, in working within ethical grounds and, and moral behaviours and within the law. Protecting their version of the Dharma and their tradition, ensuring the continuation of their tradition in its original form, is the only thing that they can do. And unfortunately, I think the emptiness teachings are what contradict the ability for them to put any safeguarding in place. Mm -hmm. Because how could they justify putting safeguarding in place when they're also saying that abuse is just in your mind? If they had to put safeguarding in place, they'd have to be acknowledging that people have been abused, not feel or perceive they've been abused, but actually have been abused and have gone on to develop trauma, which they also don't believe in. And that this might continue to happen. And then it would be a bit difficult to go around saying that abuse is just in your mind, all just to do with your own karma from stuff you did in a previous life. And that suffering, we actually need more suffering in order to become enlightened. And that narcissists and sociopaths actually might exist. They might have fairly stable personality traits. Mm -hmm. And we need to think about how we manage that. I don't, think that that's possible without them changing the teachings and the way that they're phrased, which they will never Mm do. And seeing the way that people react to me, not just on my website, but in other um, spaces, like for example, on the tricycle article, One Pure Dharma, Mm -hmm. seeing the way that teachers and followers react To people who disclose severe trauma, it is consistently unempathetic and dismissive, yet quite ridiculous sometimes. So unfortunately, you know, an organisation, if it wants to change... Um, needs to collect feedback for a start, which they don't do. They just delete and attack anything that's critical of them. Um, they're not looking out for any kind of feedback on, on how they might um, adapt. It's 2019, but they still, you know, they think that this, they can get away with calling themselves modern.
0: Certainly out of our time. I mean, they're not responding effectively to the demands of uh, social change that's taking place more broadly, right? It was, you know, interesting listening to what you just said, and I fear you may be right. Uh, part of me would like to keep out a, a little bit of hope for these people, because as we both know, there are many good people following along and not really realizing what's going on, and like yourself, they they didn't realize, or they don't realize still, that they're enabling a highly dysfunctional group which causes real suffering in the world. And I think that's the point I would probably finish on. It's, uh you know, the NKT folks, you know, what are you going to do about this suffering you're causing? Because uh, that's really the big, big issue if you're going to call yourself Buddhist. And uh, for folks that uh, you know, finding a lot of this to be news and news, uh, do go and check out uh, the website and, and take a good look. Two things I just want to add on. One is I can't help but think that this behaviour of theirs betrays a profound insecurity, which seems to be a kind of projection of, you know, Geshe-la, who's, who always seem to have a sort of inferiority complex towards the Dalai Lama. Uh, He never quite managed to accept the fact that he was inferior to him, both professionally and in terms of his realisation. But, I mean, if this is his legacy, an organisation which wants money, followers, you know, ignores real-world suffering and excuses it away through the bullshit of karma and pure teaching and wisdom and so forth, I would say his legacy is is god-awful. It's shameful that there are people, Westerners, who are defending this group and attacking people like yourself, and uh, they need to be called out on it.
1: A lot of it's the religious persecution complex.
0: Yeah. Oh, so right,
1: yeah. I obviously never met Gesler but there are accounts of ex members who found him to be paranoid and controlling in his language and his behaviours. And so I believe that he's instilled this paranoia and persecution complex into his followers. A lot of them do believe, unfortunately, and this is one of the characteristics of, of a cult, it keeps you stuck and inside by instilling fear in you of the outside world and to make you feel like the outside world is out to get you is more deluded than you and and less wise than you and and less kind than you and when you're in the group that all believe that it seems true it feels true because you've you've actually been traumatized by the leadership into this state of hyper arousal that you genuinely do believe you have been persecuted and that you need to stand up for your rights. So unfortunately, there's actually no evidence that anyone's ever tried to control how NKT practitioners practice. They have absolute freedom to practice whatever they want. But yeah, they, unfortunately, I believe it's a highly traumatized organization, whether you are still in it or whether you're an ex-member, in my opinion, it's very rare that people walk away unharmed because of the, the fears that are, that are instilled within you, whether it's fear of leaving, fear of the outside world, or fear of the NKT itself.
0: You're using the word trauma. Um, I think I would tend towards using the word delusion. I think they do indoctrinate mm. people into very specific forms of uh, ignorance. But Michelle, this, uh, this is all great, and we could continue going, but time we has could, could be- run out, I'm afraid, so... Thanks for coming on and uh, sharing some of your story and touching on some of these rich topics, which I'm sure we'll come back to. I'm just going to say it one more time. I know I've said it twice, but I'm going to say it three times. Do go and check out the website NKT Report and have a look and uh, feast your eyes on how dysfunctional Buddhist groups can become dear listeners, and be thankful that you're not part of one. At least, I hope you're not. And if you are, well, maybe you'll start to realise that by reading some of these articles and these stories from ex-followers of the NKT. And if any of those crazy leadership members of the NKT are listening to this, think about compassion, folks, outside of your tradition. Why are you enabling this suffering? What are you going to do about it? Please do something. Michelle, take care. All the best.
1: Thank you. It was a pleasure, Matthew.